Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. A U.S. drone crashed in the Black Sea after an encounter with Russian fighters. So on Tuesday, U.S. European Command, they put out a press release that said a U.S. Air Force MQ-9 Reaper drone collided with a Russian Su-27 fighter jet. So the U.S. said that they collided with the Russian fighter jet. And then the Russian Defense Ministry came out later with their statement And they denied the idea that the aircraft came in contact and said that the drone crashed into the water after making a sharp maneuver. So this is the the U.S. side of it. They said in a press release that two Russian Su-27 fighters intercepted this American MQ-9 Reaper drone somewhere in the Black Sea. They didn't specify where. They said in a press release, quote, at approximately 7.03 a.m., which is, I believe, Central European time, one of the Russian Su-27 aircraft struck the propeller of the MQ-9, causing U.S. forces to have to bring the MQ-9 down in international waters, end quote. So the Russian Defense Ministry, they said that the drone was flying with its transponders off over the Black Sea near Crimea in an area that was declared off limits by Russia. It said Russian fighters were sent to intercept the MQ-9, and the ministry said that as a result of what they called a sharp maneuver, the drone uh, went into uncontrollable flight and crashed into the water. So General James B. Hecker, he is the commander of U.S. Air Forces Europe and Air Forces Africa. He claimed that the MQ-9 drone was just conducting a routine flight and insisted that the aircraft collided. So they're saying that they were hit by a Russian fighter jet. Um, and if you're watching the video here, you know, you see the Black Sea. This is an area where the U.S. and its allies, you know, frequently fly surveillance flights. Over the last few years, NATO naval activity really stepped up in here, although it has declined pretty significantly, I think, since Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, but of course, you know, it's a sensitive area for Russia, and this is the Crimean Peninsula. And from, uh, I'm not sure, I didn't confirm any of it, but I saw some charts going around on Twitter of where about the drone was. <clears throat> and it was uh, off the coast of Crimea, about over 30 miles or so. So, um, and it's an MQ-9 Reaper drone. You know, they that's what the U.S. uses. They use them a lot for drone strikes, you know, in the Middle East. And they're usually armed with missiles. Um, so it's not like it's just a spy plane. You know, this is something that, that has a pretty serious payload. Um, so, again, the American side is blaming the Russians. And the White House, of course, after this incident, they said that they will continue to operate in the Black Sea despite these, you know, these risks, these clear risks. Uh, when it comes to operating in these areas. This is White House National Security Advisor John Kirby. He said, quote, we're going to fly and operate in international airspace over international waters. The Black Sea belongs to no nation, and we are going to continue to do what we need to do for our own national security interests in that part of the world, end quote. And I don't understand how flying 
Reaper drones around Crimea, you know, is in the U.S. national security interest. It seems like it's purposely provocative, you know, toward Russia. You know, just how would the U.S. feel if there was Russian, you know, drones flying around the Gulf of Mexico that could possibly be armed with Hellfire missiles? Um, Anyway, Russia's ambassador to the U.S., Anatoly Antonov, he said that Moscow views the incident as a provocation, but indicated that Russia did not plan to escalate the situation, you know, based on this incident. And he said this after being summoned by the U.S. State Department. He had a meeting with the State Department that he said was constructive. And he said, quote, as for us, we do not want any confrontation between the United States and Russia. We are in favor of building pragmatic relations for the benefit of the Russian and American peoples, end quote. So sounding very diplomatic, which I think is a good sign. You know, of course, when I first saw this, this is a risk we're always talking about. I mean, you know, these interceptions, uh, you know, Jason Ditz for a while was covering a lot of interceptions of U.S. planes getting intercepted by Russian planes in the Black Sea years ago. You know, this this the U.S. has been very active uh, in this part of the world for a long time. Uh, And over the summer, I think it was 2021, a British warship sailed within 12 miles of Crimea and 12 miles is territorial waters and Russia fired warning shots. And, you know, there's a U.S. spy plane right there. So, again, you know, that's definitely provocative toward Russia, no matter how the U.S. wants to portray it. And this is what this is a risk. And luckily, this situation didn't spiral. But, you know, if this can happen in the Black Sea, of course. It could happen in a lot of places like the South China Sea, where the U.S. Uh, flies a ton of surveillance planes and drones. Um, so it is always a risk. Uh, all right. So the next story here, Poland says that it might send MiG-29 fighter jets to Ukraine in four to six weeks. So this is Poland's prime minister who said on Tuesday that Warsaw could give Ukraine Soviet-made MiG-29 fighter jets within four to six weeks. And this would, of course, mark giving Ukraine fighter jets would mark a significant escalation in NATO support for Kiev. So the Polish prime minister said that Poland wanted to transfer the jets as part of a coalition, suggesting that it will only happen if other NATO countries went along. Poland has seems like they, they, they're good at pressuring other NATO countries to go along. Because if you remember, they were the ones saying that they wanted to send send leopard tanks, the German-made leopard tanks, you know, before Germany said they would do it. Uh, and then Germany was eventually convinced to do it. And the MiGs, you know, it's only the former Soviet uh, republics that have that had that has them. And Slovakia has previously said that they are open to sending them. So I think it is possible that this could happen. And Ukrainian pilots are are trained to use these planes. So so once they get to Ukraine, you know, they can be used in battle. But it's not clear how long the process of delivering the aircraft would take. So way back in March 2022, so about one year ago, Poland offered to give their MiG-29s to the U.S. to send to Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine said they wanted them and Poland said they they were willing to give them, but I guess they didn't want to be the ones to send them into Ukraine. So they said, hey, you know, we'll send them to a U.S. base in Germany. And then from there, you you know, kind of going backwards, (laughs) you know, going away from Ukraine. But anyway, the Pentagon rejected the the idea over concerns of escalation. And NATO diplomats said at the time that providing Ukraine with fighter jets could be perceived by Russia as the alliance directly entering the war. But one year later, those concerns have gone away. NATO is much less concerned about escalation, as we can see from all the tanks and and things like that, that they are going to send. 
and the U.S. and its allies, they are laying the groundwork for uh, to eventually provide Ukraine with advanced Western fighter jets, such as the F-16, which would require extensive training for Ukrainian pilots. Ukrainian pilots have already arrived in the U.S. to assess their skill levels, to learn how long it would take to train them on American fighter jets. Again, another sign that, that the U.S. does plan to eventually give them these. And more and more European countries that have U.S. jets or other uh, advanced, you know, Western-made fighter jets are expressing that they're open to sending them to Ukraine. Just the other day, uh, Finland's prime minister said that Finland has FA-18 Hornet jets, and they're going to be replaced by F-35s that they're buying. So they're saying once they replace them with F-35s, yeah, we could, you know, send them over to Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, it seems like we're definitely moving in this direction of NATO providing fighter jets. All right, the next one here, the U.S. and the Philippines will hold their largest ever annual military exercise. So this is going to begin in April, and this is, you know, amid pretty heightened tensions between Philippines and China, the U.S. and China over this part of the world. And the annual Balakatan exercises, they're going to be held from April 11th to the 28th, and about 17,600 military personnel will take part, including 12,000 U.S. troops. So that's a sizable number of U.S. troops taking part in these drills. Also, about 111 Australian soldiers will be there. Um, so this is a, a Philippine colonel who is a spokesman for the exercises. He said this is going to be the largest Balakatan exercise. He said that the drills will include live fire exercises into the water for the first time. And the previous largest uh, iteration of these drills took place in 2015 when more than 11,000 troops participated. So even back when it was the largest one, it was... Uh, Sounds like it was a lot smaller than this, 11,000 compared to 17,600. And these exercises come after the U.S. signed a deal with the Philippine government, uh, which gives the U.S. access to four more military bases in the Philippines. I believe that brings it to nine bases that the U.S. is able to you know, deploy troops to. And this is part of the U.S. military buildup against China. So we keep seeing these types of moves. You know, this is another move, holding these huge drills. Of course, this is going to be a message to China. And the exercises will be held in several Philippine provinces, including Palawan, which is a province on the South China Sea. And the South China Sea are, you know, the main source of tensions between Beijing and Manila. So Chinese and Philippine vessels, they often have standoffs. There's disputed rocks and reefs, you know, some that are controlled by the Philippines and Chinese boats will show up and or they'll try to block the Philippine boats or vice versa. Things like that happen. And whenever that happens, the U.S. always tells China, they always remind the world that, you know, if these Philippine boats come under attack, if basically if this maritime dispute between China and the Philippines turns hot and boats start shooting at each other, the U.S. is willing to intervene and, and go to war with China. Uh and, you know, there's a lot of situations like this. And the U.S. has written a lot of checks uh, that they probably wouldn't be able to cash at the same time when it comes to, you know, these defense guarantees that they hand out, you know, around the world. Um, all right. The next one here, China says that the AUKUS countries are going down a dangerous path. So the Chinese foreign ministry warned on Tuesday that the U.S., Britain and Australia are going down a dangerous path with the AUKUS military pact 
after the three nations unveiled their nuclear-powered submarine plans, which I went over yesterday. So this is Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin. He said, quote, The latest joint statement issued by the U.S., the U.K., and Australia shows that the three countries, for their own geopolitical interests, have totally disregarded the concerns of the international community and gone further down the road, down the wrong and dangerous path, end quote. So Wang suggested that the deal could violate the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT, although this treaty has a pretty big loophole that applies to submarines. So under this AUKUS deal, Australia is going to acquire U.S.-made nuclear-powered submarines, and the goal is that they're eventually going to be able to make their own. So U.S. nuclear-powered subs, uh, the plan is, you know, they're not going to be armed with nukes, at least, you know, initially. Things could always change. Um, But U.S. nuclear-powered submarines, they use highly enriched weapons-grade uranium, you know, over 90% enriched uranium. Uh, which is weapons grade. And under the non-proliferation treaty, you know, a non-nuclear armed state isn't supposed to get that. But under this loophole that they have in the NPT, naval reactors basically uh, don't apply. They're not subject to inspections under the International Atomic Energy Agency. But the AUKUS deal, this is the first time that this loophole is going to be used to transfer fit, you know, this nuclear technology and nuclear material to a non-nuclear weapon state. So it is an unprecedented thing that's happening here. And while it does appear that it's not technically a violation of the MPT, it does test some articles of the treaty that say non-nuclear weapon states should use nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. I would argue that, uh, you know, building nuclear-powered submarines is not a peaceful purpose. Um, And then Wang, the Chinese, are saying that it is a violation of the MPT, And Wang said that it is uh, a proliferation risk, which I think it's safe to say that it is a proliferation risk, but maybe not technically a violation of the NPT. Um, Australian officials, they expect to spend $245 billion on this submarine initiative, and the U.S. Navy says it's going to turn Australia into a full-service submarine hub for all underwater aircraft activity in the Asia-Pacific. And what this does is it cements Australia's role as a U.S. ally in a potential future conflict with China. Although, you know, again, these plans are going to take decades. So if a war does break out within the next 10 years, they might not even have their first American-made submarines yet. Um, Hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, But anyway, so again, like I said, this cements Australia's role as a U.S. ally in this future war with their biggest trading partner, China. And the next one here is interesting. It's from Declassified Australia. And the majority of Australians oppose the U.S. war on China. So a majority of Australians want Australia to adopt a policy of neutrality when it comes to considering a U.S. war against China, according to the latest polling by the Lowy Institute think tank. The poll conducted in 2022 found 51% of Australians said they'd prefer Australia to remain neutral in any U.S. military conflict with China over Taiwan, down from 57% in 2020. This runs so contrary to mainstream media representations of such polling that it's worth stating again that the majority of Australians say they want Australia to maintain neutrality. It's 51%, slim majority, I guess, but it is a majority. Um, So I think that's, you know... They're really ramping up the propaganda in Australia. I forget what paper. Maybe it was the Sydney Morning Herald 
ran this, you know, crazy he headline front page, you know, like I forget exactly what it was, but it was something basically saying war with China, you know, we have to be prepared. It's coming. And this has been on uh, ABC, the Australian broadcasting company. They, they have segments about war with China that I've watched before that are just totally unhinged. They're really getting, you know, inundated with propaganda. So unfortunately I think this number might, you know, drop a little bit because of all this propaganda that the Australians are facing. But, you know, again, if a war breaks out between the U.S. and China in the Asia Pacific and it doesn't go nuclear right away, it's the countries in the region that have all these big U.S. bases like Japan, Philippines and Australia that are going to be, you know, targets um, and going to be really dealing with the consequences of this. So they should be against it. All right, the next one here. This is from Middle East Eye. Netanyahu moves a step closer with his judicial coup bill in parliament. So this is Israel's Knesset, the parliament. On Tuesday, they moved a step closer to passing a bill that would allow politicians to overturn high court judgments with a simple majority as well as appoint judges. Netanyahu's plans, the prime minister, uh, the legislation... It would overhaul the country's judiciary, and it has been described as a judicial coup. In an overnight session that stretched into the early morning, the Knesset also approved several other pieces of legislation, including le legislation that would prevent the country's attorney general from declaring Netanyahu unfit for office. The prime minister would only be declared unfit for office due to physical or mental inability, and then only by the prime minister himself or by the vote of three quarters of cabinet members. Um, and the parliament also passed a piece of legislation that would expand settlements in the West Bank. So in a further potential blow to the judiciary, the Israeli parliament also voted for a bill that would require a consensus of 12 out of 15 judges to strike down legislation that was ruled unconstitutional. Um, so, yeah, it really is giving. Uh, and the same bill would give parliament the ability to override the Supreme Court with a simple majority while demanding a supermajority for the highest court to do the same. Yeah, so there's, there's, this is giving all power to the Knesset over the court. So if the court rules something, the Knesset can strike it down if they just get a simple majority. And then if they pass a legislation that the court thinks is unconstitutional, the court needs a pretty major majority, 12 out of 15 judges. So this is what everybody's all upset about and protesting about. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are coming out against this new Israeli government, a lot of very pro-Israel people in the U.S. Um, you know, something like 400,000 people were out uh, protesting this the other day, but they're still going right ahead with it. All right, the next one here, two rockets fired at a U.S. base in Syria. So this is according to U.S. Central Command. They said two rockets were fired at a U.S. base in an occupied oil field in eastern Syria on Monday. A press release from Central Command said, quote, on March 13th at 8.23 p.m. local time in Syria, two rockets landed near coalition forces at mission support site Green Village in northeast Syria, end quote. So the U.S. base at Green Village is in Syria's largest oil field. It's it's on the oil field known as Al-Omar. I believe it's in the Deir Ezzor uh, province in the east there. CENTCOM said there was no casualties in the attack. No U.S. or coalition troops were killed or wounded, and there was no damage to coalition infrastructure. And uh, I just, you know, give a brief overview of the situation in Syria. There's still these 900 troops stationed there, of course. And it is about the oil. When Trump 
decided to stay in Syria in 2019. They said they're going to stay there to secure the oil. And really, I just wanted to highlight this and kind of just as Syria has been in the news and, and we've been talking a lot about it with this resolution from Matt Gates that it got voted down. But I think there is some momentum to try something again um, soon or in the future. So uh, and just, you know, tell people the, these bases come under attack a lot. You know, there's a lot of these rocket attacks. Um, there hasn't been many casualties over the past year or so when it, it comes to U.S. troops in Syria. But still that you know that again it's always just a potential tripwire for a bigger war and of course the troops there are you know their lives are at risk uh because of these attacks all right the next one here pentagon's budget puts focus on munitions production so the pentagon this 2024 budget that president biden has requested it it includes a pretty major increase uh, in funds that would go to the weapons makers to produce missiles and other types of munitions. It includes $30.6 billion for that. And this represents a 12% increase from 2023 levels, which is pretty significant. And this is, you know, part of the reason why, uh, well, this is because of, of the U S shipping all that, you know, depleting their ammunition stockpiles by arming Ukraine. And the budget will also include what has been dubbed wartime purchasing powers for the Pentagon. It basically lifts, you know, cuts some lifts restrictions on these deals and makes it easier for the Pentagon to enter multi-year contracts to buy in bulk. Uh, so again, it's a big boon for the defense contractors. And the Pentagon, they're planning a drastic increase in production. They want to increase ammunition, artillery ammunition production, I believe specifically the 155 millimeter shells because they've sent over a million of them to Ukraine. They want to increase that production by 500% over the next two years. So again, it's just a boon. And, you know, it's it's an artillery battle in Ukraine. It's a major, major, major artillery battle. And NATO has acknowledged, the NATO Secretary General, that the entire alliance combined cannot produce shells as fast as Ukraine is using them. So that's another reason why it doesn't seem like this policy of supporting this war is that sustainable. Um, all right. The next one here, Sweden says it is likely that Finland will join NATO before them. So this is just a little update on the Sweden, Finland, NATO situation. You know, Turkey still hasn't approved it. And Sweden's prime minister, Ulf Kristersson, he said on Tuesday that it's becoming more likely that Finland will be able to join NATO without Sweden as Turkey has more outstanding issues with Sweden. They, they're demanding more of Sweden and they're saying that they're not happy with them. So Christerson, he's just saying that it seems more likely that's their assessment. And the Swedish leader said it's become increasingly clear that Turkey was ready to ratify Finland, but not Sweden. And Erdogan, the Turkish president, he, you know, has said this before, that they could approve Finland. You know, they, they want more extraditions from Sweden. They were mad at them about this protest that was held in front of the Turkish embassy where a Quran was burned. Um and Turkey resumed talks with Sweden and Finland on March 9th. They suspended them after that protest. But a Swedish negotiator involved in the talks said Tuesday that Turkey is still not happy with the steps. They're, they're, they're just saying that they haven't done enough yet. And Sweden and Finland, they initially entered the process vowing only to join NATO together. But Finnish officials have reversed course, saying that they won't delay membership if Turkey ratifies them first without Sweden. So Turkey and Hungary are the only two NATO members that have yet to 
that have not yet ratified Sweden and Finland joining the alliance. So Hungary's parliament, it looks like they're delaying the vote again. They were supposed to vote it or debate it at least on March 14th. That got postponed to March 20th, and now they're. it looks like they're postponing it again. So Hungary still uh, hasn't, hasn't approved it yet. Uh, but that's it. The next article here, uh, this is from Consortium News. It's actually a video. Seymour Hirsch held a little uh, press conference on Tuesday night about his Nord Stream reporting. It was hosted by the Committee for the Republic in D.C. at the National Press Club. Um, and it's interesting. I didn't get to watch the whole thing yet, but what, from what I saw is very, very interesting. Um, so go check that out. Watch that video. It's a little over an hour long. Uh, that's it for the news. Go check out our viewpoints. One from Ted Snyder. China brokers agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia sidelining the United States. And that's uh, Ted writing over at the Libertarian Institute. One from Colonel Douglas McGregor, which is, you know, you always got to read his stuff. Over at the American Conservative, the gathering storm, America's self-inflicted trouble in Ukraine aggravates our dangerous trouble at home. Uh, one from Michael Clare is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan imminent. Uh, let's see. Norman Solomon, the ur urbanity of evil, 20 years after the invasion of Iraq. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the u.s invasion of iraq and then the spotlight is from matt taibbi in fbi case the first amendment takes another bizarre hit and that's it uh that's everything for today go check out stuff in the blog too there's a few things over there uh you could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate like and subscribe to the show leave comments ratings and reviews and uh share it with your friends and tell people about it um, but I will be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.